Tonight we are continuing with our reading and comments from the Tibetan Yoga. I am commenting on a rare treatise called the Yoga of the Disciple, which contains 28 chapters of precepts of truths, which are like guidelines for the spiritual seekers. The Tibetans have borrowed this classification, the ten causes of error, the ten causes of regret, this and that, they borrowed them from the Chinese style, where things are always systematic, like eight signs of this, ten symptoms of that, and so on. It's more specific to the Chinese philosophy. And the Tibetans, with their specific aspiration, they have been very, very sharp. Often you will see, I don't know if we reach to some of those tonight or in the next weeks, but the Tibetans are always using a very sharp sense, a mixture of Manipura and Ajna Chakra. Of course, there is always some Anahata embedded in the Tibetan Yoga and the Tibetan Buddhism due to the practice of compassion, but nevertheless, their psychological tendency is this very masculine, this, this very powerful Manipura-Ajna combination, which makes that, as you are going to see sometimes, they use an uncanny sense of humor, they use sarcasm, they use irony, like as soon as they spot some hypocrisy, some falsity, as soon as they spot some imperfection in spiritual conduct, they zap it, they zap it mercilessly. They don't, so this makes always the Tibetan yoga and its precepts a bit sharp, sometimes for the modern world with the weak Manipura, they seem to be like politically incorrect. Perhaps sometimes you should add like modern television series do for the wimpy Manipura modern people, viewer discretion is advised. It's the same with Tibetan yoga. Sometimes listener discretion is advised because Tibetan yoga, although compassionate, it is not merciful when it comes to falsity, when it comes to such things. Sometimes, as you are going to see, their similes, their metaphors are very ironic, very acid. And as I said, first of all, depending on the time which we have this season, and let's see for how long I'm going to read, I want to start with the ones which are the most pungent, the most significant, the most outspoken, the most um, straightforward, and I selected especially few chapters uh, which are less metaphysical but more experiential, more directly based on the daily life of the spiritual seeker. And the last time I started explaining the 10 errors, the chapter number 10 in this list of 28 chapters, and we managed to go through the first six of those 10 errors. Therefore, today I'm continuing with the seventh of the so-called 10 errors. Tibetan yogis told to their disciples there are 10 main errors that a spiritual seeker is liable to commit. And here is number seven. 
Unless the mind be disciplined by knowledge of its own immaterial nature, one is apt to fall into the error of diverting all activities along the path of worldliness. This is a very subtle one. Unless the mind be disciplined by knowledge of its own immaterial nature, we have to reread this half of the sentence in the tantric understanding of it. The Buddhist original understanding is, unless the mind be disciplined by knowledge of its, you know, of its own immaterial nature, because what is the mind in Buddhism? It's an offshot of the void of the Buddha nature. When you meditate on the mind, first step is that you see that the whole universe is mind, when you see either in your mind or with the eyes open trees and houses and people and hills and whatever you see, it's all in the mind. This is the concept like in the matrix. How do you know that you actually live in Kansas City or you are hooked on a computer by the machines and you live in an imaginary world in which just electrical stimuli are, are served to your sense organs, to your brain? <clears throat> And therefore, the first realization of meditation, which is not the highest, this is the first big landmark, is that the whole universe is mind. I remind that the mind is Ajna Chakra, but Ajna Chakra is the sixth sense. It is the synthesis which synthesizes the other five lower chakras which correspond to the five elements. So the universe is made out of the five elements. Up till Vishuddha Chakra, you can describe everything in the universe. And then on top of it, there comes a shell that wraps the five elements, understands them, controls them, which is the mind, the sixth sense, the macrocosmic mind, the ocean of intelligence. Some people who are on the non-spiritual materialistic side they tend to stop here. That is why the devil in the New Testament, in the Revelation of John, is symbolized by the number six. Six is not yet seven. Six is like a kundalini which rises, but not straight up to Sahasrara. It stops somewhere. Six is Lucifer. Lucifer or Satan is a fallen angel that has a star on his forehead, symbol of Ajna Chakra without Sahasrara. Six without seven is not good enough. It's actually very dark and very dangerous. That's why the universe does not stop at the mind. Materialistic people think, okay, we can accept parallel universes, we can accept invisible energies and forces, we can accept even reincarnation, that you go into the astral body and then you come back, but it's like a pyramid without the tip. It's like a decapitated pyramid. The very last level, number seven, we don't need it. As often I say, sometimes in the occult literature of people inclined in this way, and I give as example always the Lord of the Rings, there is no God. There are occult forces, clairvoyance, magic, souls coming back in another body like reincarnation. No God. Nothing transcendent which gives grace. 
So it's a decapitated pyramid, and that is a very, very important Luciferic symbol in which people think that the five elements, which means the universe and the mind, are enough. No, it's not enough. That's still Prakriti, and we are still not having Purusha. We are still not having the transcendent spirit. That transcendent spirit, which the old Sankhya philosophy has called Purusha, and which the Vedantins have called Atma or Atman, and which the Kashmiri Shaivists have called the Shiva consciousness, this supreme consciousness, called Brahman also by the Vedantins, is called in Buddhism the Buddha nature and sometimes the void. Especially in the Theravada Buddhism, the name the boy, void is kept. In the Mahayana and especially in the Vajrayana tradition prevalent in Tibet, they prefer to use the Buddha nature because the name void, Shunya, has been bitterly criticized because it gives to some people a false understanding because some people believing that the top of the realization is emptiness. Emptiness means psychologically something very bad, like nobody wants to experience a state of emptiness. You will meditate 25 years to discover that you are actually empty. People say, then why didn't we use a bullet from the beginning? You know, it's like, why do you have to spend 25 years in meditation to end with a conclusion that everything is emptiness? That emptiness is not empty. Even a low spiritual level martial artist like Bruce Lee commenting on his mixture of martial arts and Tao says that emptiness is warm and luminous. It is the essence of everything. Like when it's warm and luminous, it's not nothingness. It's not a black hole. It's something, but it's something which cannot be described by words. It is something which is not circumscribed by space and time. It is something which is absolute, infinite, perfect. And because of this, the words are at a loss and the mind freezes. The mind goes like in Yoga Sutra. It goes into arrest, into ecstatic arrest in front of that reality. That's why we could call it void in the meaning that the mind goes flabbergasted in front of it. But it's not void as such because it is something. That's why even in Buddhism, eventually modern, even modern commentators like the 14th Dalai Lama, they make clearly void or emptiness does not mean nothingness. It means something which is beyond the mind, the space and time, and you cannot describe it, and that's why it's left always as a big question mark. <clears throat> that's what the Hindus have called Purusha, Brahman, the Shiva consciousness. <clears throat> This transcendent aspect, which we often use by a more, by the less pretentious name of consciousness, the one thing which is above the mind, consciousness, pure consciousness, this transcendent aspect is the tip of the pyramid. The cosmic pyramid without the seventh level, without this Shiva consciousness, becomes a Luciferic materialistic, incomplete thing. And that's why Tibetan gurus insist the mind must be disciplined by knowledge of its own material nature. The human knowledge does not end with the knowledge of the mind, 
ha, I know the mind, I can see everything, I can understand everything, I can control the five elements and therefore I'm almighty and I can move galaxies with my mind. That's not the end of the road. That's just to have a Luciferic power. There is something beyond the mind and that something beyond the mind is the hub of the cosmic wheel that is the absolute consciousness. And the Buddhists have put, trained the mind to knowledge of its own immaterial nature. The next step in meditation by the Tibetan Buddhist is that after you realize that everything is mind, now go to the next step and realize that mind is void. That mind itself is a product of something even less comprehensible, even more high, e transcendent in its nature and actually completely inexpressible. And therefore they say do not let your mind believe that it is the master. There is a master of the mind and that is the self, the supreme self. Bhagavad Gita and many other traditional texts say exactly the same thing, sometimes in different words, but the meaning is the same. We have mind and then we have the spirit. We have the Atman, the self, the supreme consciousness, which is the controller, the invisible, discrete, but still is, controller of the mind. Therefore, if the mind would be the last step, and the mind would not have behind it, beyond it, an immaterial nature, now, immaterial nature says void. In Tantra, we would simply describe the duality between Shiva as pure consciousness and Shakti as manifestation. The mind is like the highest level of the manifestation. But beyond the mind, there is the non-manifestation, the pure consciousness, this transcendent consciousness of Shiva. In Buddhism, especially sometimes these formulations, they kind of say, drop the mind, drop the five elements, and jump in nirvana. Drop samsara, jump in nirvana. As I said it so many times, and those of you who are familiar with the Agama lore know it already, in the tantric tradition these things are reformulated, because the tantric tradition does not say, that you should favor Shiva to the detriment of Shakti. The Tantric tradition says Shiva and Shakti are the two sides of one and the same coin. Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva. Therefore, you don't need to drop samsara. You need to bring samsara together with nirvana. As the Vajrayana Buddhism of Tibet says it, samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara. There is a dance and a love between Shiva and Shakti, between consciousness and matter. And that's why in the moment when we say the mind be disciplined by knowledge of its own immaterial nature, the non-tantric interpretation is then drop the mind and go to that nature which is above the mind. The tantric interpretation is get that transcendental nature without necessarily dropping the mind. You don't need to drop the mind. You can keep it. 
The mind is part of Prakriti, and so are the five elements. That's the Shakti. You don't need to drop it, but you need to know that Shakti is always accompanied by Shiva. There is always a couple. So in both situations, there is this emphasis, discover what is beyond the mind, because without that one, the travel is not complete. Only that some people are more exclusive, like running from the mind, and some people are more inclusive, like in Tantra, and they say there's nothing wrong with the mind, as long as the mind doesn't, doesn't think it is the sole master because it is not the sole master, it's only one side of the coin, then you have to see the pure consciousness, which is the other side of that reality. So, if the mind is not disciplined, and you believe in mind and the five elements, but your pyramid is decapitated, then one is apt to fall into the error, of diverting all activities along the path of worldliness. That means there are people who take the spiritual knowledge and they try to make something which has a meaning in the world. The religion and the spirituality doesn't necessarily has to have any meaning in the world. It doesn't. People think that the Catholic Church is supposed to do charity. If it doesn't do charity, it's not a good organization. That's just to please the crowds. And if you do something to please the crowds, then you, have, you might have forgotten the spiritual goal. You might not. You might have both of them. But care should be taken that you don't forget the other one. There's a beautiful story in the sayings of the Fathers of the Desert with one of the fathers of the desert who somehow reaches to Rome. There are two versions of the story, one in which he is transported magically by a sort of teleportation, and one in which he simply travels physically. And he is in the company, the fathers of the desert lived in the 6th, 7th century AD, and they were very hardcore Christian mystics living in the deserts of Egypt, Sinai, Palestine, and <clears throat> they are until today one of the backbones of the Christian mysticism. And by this time, the Christian church was not persecuted anymore. Constantine had ended the persecution of Christianity in the 4th century. <clears throat> so now Christianity was an accepted religion. More than that, it was a state religion. And it was thriving. They started having big churches, bishops, hierarchy, institution, everything. And this father of the desert is in the company on one of these cardinals, bishops, whatever, hierarchy of the church. And the guy is it's showing him a coffer full of gold. And he says, see, the time when our church was an underground, persecuted organization and we had to hide like rats in the catacombs has passed already. And now we can really do some big work. And that old man who was coming from the desert and who was living by different standards says, yes, but try now to say to a paralyzed man, take your stand up, take your stretcher and go home. Like, this is worldliness. The Christianity had become more worldly, but it had lost some of the divine power, or at least that's what this old man was 
fearing, like he was questioning, is there still spiritual virtue? Like, right, you've got the worldly things. You are accepted, like you care that you were persecuted, and now you are accepted. What difference does it make to the transcendent consciousness that you are accepted or persecuted? Why is this a goal of yours? Is this goal worth it? Are you able to stick to this goal of fulfilling worldly things? Like we want to be legal. We want to be accepted. We want people to think that we are nice. We want to have material possibilities. We want to have monasteries and whatever. We want to print our own literature or whatever. In those days it was hand copying it and so on. Like we want a lot of logistical advantages. But that is not the most important. What if actually the Supreme Consciousness wants you to live like an outlaw for a reason which is not yours? You don't understand why and say, how could God want us to live in a state of constant persecution and chasing? Why not? It had happened before for 300 years. It could have continued that way as well. Therefore, I'm not saying, mind you, that it's necessary, especially in this case described here, that some religion or spirituality should absolutely not follow mundane purposes. That would be the Vedantic or the Theravadin Buddhist interpretation. To make sure that you do not fall, that you do not divert all activities along the path of worldliness, then you should have no worldliness. Then better poor but honest, you know. Let's have nothing, then it's sure we are not going to be tickled by the devil, we are not going to be tempted. That's a radical, fanatical extreme. That's not the middle path of the Buddha. The middle path of the Buddha, Buddha says you can stay in the middle of both, being detached and transcending the whole issue after all. But the mind always says either we do worldly things and you can see how many religions of the world and even lineages like lineages of yoga and others which have not become religions but they are lineages of spirituality they have gone into worldliness and this worldliness up till a certain point is good like Swami Shivananda printed more than 200 books that's worldliness who cares about books? Ramakrishna never wrote one book. Is Swami Shivananda a fallen yogi compared to Ramakrishna because Ramakrishna never built anything, never printed anything, never this and that. And Swami Shivananda was doing lots of physical work, building universities, printing presses, kitchens, hospitals, printing books and all that. No, because Swami Shivananda applied a tantric principle more even than Ramakrishna. He didn't get caught in the maze of it, and he did worldly things, because, hey, like this, I can convince more people. I can reach more people. If we look in terms of efficiency, today there is a Shivananda Yoga, and people read the message of Shivananda, the message of Ramakrishna reaches proportionally fewer people. There is a Ramakrishna Vivekananda organization, but they preach a very dry form of Vedanta. 
people don't feel so attracted to it. So Ramakrishna, for many 21st century people, unless you come to a school at Azagama where we praise Ramakrishna and then many of you get curious, who was this dude called Ramakrishna? Because they keep talking so highly about him. But otherwise, Ramakrishna is like less visible, less efficient than a Shivananda who had a foot in this world and a foot in the spiritual world, which is the tantric attitude, 50% Shakti, 50% Shiva. Have both of them. Therefore, um, there is this danger always that, again, some people give a fanatical extreme solution, and in Tantra we won't agree to that, jumping into the opposite extreme, that as long as the mind does not realize, I am not the omega, I am not the end of the process, and we need to consecrate this process to the Buddha nature, to the Supreme Consciousness, to the Shiva Consciousness, and thus we leave a space for this mysterious, incomprehensible, transcendent consciousness, then we are falling only on the mind. There are secret societies in the so-called Western mystical tradition, which unfortunately it's not there, which unfortunately is a decadent mystical tradition. Many Westerners have said, what, there is spirituality only in the East? You come only with Buddhism and Ramakrishna and this. What do you think that we Westerners had none? And some people said, yeah, we had Christianity. No, 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 bugger, not, not Christianity. Christianity is an enemy, really. It's a, no, we had a sort of unnamed, uh, fuzzy Western mystical tradition, which is part of Celtic tradition, Wicca, witchcraft, magic, Rosicrucianism. It's this web which constitutes the, ma the mass of the secret societies of the West. But in this web, which for example have sponsored largely the French Revolution, after the French Revolution discarded with the Catholic priests and committed mass murder among priests and aristocrats, in the town halls of the French cities, there were erected statues of a goddess. It was the goddess of the revolution, of the revolutionaries, and it was called the goddess reason. Like, people should not be governed by the faith. There is some sort of invisible cloud of unknowing which suddenly pops up in your mind and tells to Jesus, you have to die on a cross for the good of the mankind. No, 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 no. I must be schizophrenic. I must be mentally ill. Where did that come from? I will not accept any inspiration, intuition. It has to be rational. In the moment when you want to guide the world by reason, you have become luciferic because you have lost the tip of the pyramid. The world is reason plus God, which is non-rational and cannot be quantified. In the human being, there is a grain of surprise. There is something original, creative, supramental, which does not come from the reason. That's why spiritual people have not always acted according to reason. Peter, the apostle, the future apostle of Christ, who was a reasonable man, tells to Jesus, Jesus, 
if you said that if you go to Jerusalem, they are going to kill you, then there is a very simple solution which I propose. Don't go to Jerusalem. No, it's like every intelligent person would say, don't go to Jerusalem. And Jesus tells him, Peter, you think as men think without God. There's not God in your mind. You are only up to reason. You reason. Rationally, you are right. But he says, you think as men think, not as God thinks. Which means, I, Jesus, have a grain of madness beyond your reason. I can think what you think, but on top of that, I have a little something, a midget in my head, which tells me, although it would be rational not to go to Jerusalem and get bumped, you nevertheless have to go because God wants you to go and something historical will happen. That's the top of the pyramid. It's a transmental, a supramental intuition which gives a lot of trouble to the rationalists. That's why people like Ramakrishna and like Milarepa, people like Saint Teresa of Avila and like Rumi, they are impredictable. And that's why the institutions have problems with them. Saint Teresa of Avila was a Catholic, ultra-Catholic Christian saint in the 15th century Spain, which was an ultra-Catholic country, and she was persecuted, stoned, threatened with excommunication, and a lot of other things. Why would you treat badly one of your flowers? Like the Catholic Church is always very proud. Look, we still have saints. There are some saints. We are not dead. The tree still blossoms from time to time. Then why would you treat badly your flowers? She's not the only one. Francis of Assisi was tortured and beaten and threatened with excommunication. Padre Pio in the 20th century was threatened with excommunication, isolated, like in, imprisoned in his own cell in the monastery and a few other things. Why would the Catholic Church do this thing to its own people? because the church is an institution and it works with reason. And those saints came up with something which was not in the books, because they were inspired by the transcendental nature, which can always surprise. There, is, there are not enough rules and laws which can encompass, which can cir circumscribe the cosmic consciousness. And that's why always the person of spirit is a bit of a maverick. The person of spirit does things which break the rules, the rules of their religion, the rules of the society. And if you ask them why, they simply said, God told me, this is my dharma. This is what I got from God. And people say, maybe you should take a shot in your brain. Maybe you are schizophrenic and you need treatment. You know, Why do you need at all costs to be different, to be provocative? to be? Why can't you just be aligned? Alignment means I am rational. I simply obey to the rules traced before me. In the moment when something pops up from the infinite, that something might not be kosher, might not be acceptable. It might be something new because the society progresses, the human being changes, the epochs are advancing, the yugas are changing. And therefore, it's normal that the cosmic consciousness, which is alive, it keeps progressing. That's why religions can never be hammered and nailed. And that's why when a religion becomes dogma, 
it's bound to die or become ridiculous and therefore obsolete sooner or later. This aliveness, this cosmic injection of surprise of the creativity which goes beyond reason, that's exactly where the life of the religion and spirituality is. And that's why, again, let's read this with this new understanding. Unless the mind be disciplined by knowledge of its own immaterial nature, like the mind is not the end of it, there is something beyond that, and that's the target, that's the real fulcrum of the universe, one is able to fall into the error of diverting all activities along the path of worldliness. Like people try to please the world. But sometimes the divine consciousness may want not to please the world. Many, Jesus and Muhammad and many, many prophets and seers and great spirits, they did not please the world. They were very provocative to the people in their generation and they did many things which were considered not orthodox, not okay. Therefore, pay attention to this because there exists a very discreet conformism in the spiritual world and that conformism is just reducing spirituality to reason which is one of the terrible mistakes of the modern centuries ever since the ever since the so-called renaissance we are witnessing a resurrection of reason before renaissance people were having a surrender and living by faith and today people say oh lucky that we went out of the dark ages and we went into the renaissance where some old reason came from the standpoint of the spiritual people it's actually the other way around until the renaissance there was faith and transcendence and after renaissance people try to subject themselves to reason until at the french revolution reason becomes queen and today with the scientific secular society everything is judged in terms of reason and if a mystical person contradicts reason, then they are not right, they are guilty, they should be persecuted or something there. <clears throat> Therefore, follow this. How many gurus, how many people are actually diverting all activities along the path of worldliness? Many churches become meeting points, discos, social clubs, charity activity hubs that's nice i have nothing against those but jesus for example is not known for having done charity and when they anointed his feet with myrrh or i don't know what expensive spice judas of all people who is exactly the rationalist that's why judas is judas because he thinks and he says i don't understand and jesus tells him don't try to understand with the mind Understand with the heart, the heart being mind plus purusha, mind plus spiritual intuition. And that's a really Kashmirian concept, like the Hridaya from Kashmiri Shaivas is exactly what Jesus says there. He uses a beautiful terminology which unites East with West. And Judas, who is the rationalist, 
and who apparently was the cashier of their little group of people, Judah says, instead of making such an extravagant gestures of anointing the feet of Jesus with this Chanel number no. 5 thing, we could have sold this, made some money, had food for us, and even given something to the poor. Like he's a hypocrite. He says, you know, we could have given something to the poor. Like why do the feet of Jesus need to be anointed with some expensive nard or I don't know what uh, spice. And Jesus the modest, Jesus the selfless, Jesus the humble does not object. And you can see that it's not because he's puffed up or infatuated, but he again says something which sounds like Judas. You think like people think. And if you are an accountant, your judgment is okay. But there is something beyond that. And Jesus says, there will be a day when I shall be taken away from you, and you wish you could wash my feet with some myrrh, and I won't be available there. So he says, as long as I am in the world, I am like the groom in a wedding party. People celebrate. One day the groom shall be taken away, then you will fast, then you will go in vigil and prayer. Right now it's tantric season, let's enjoy it, it's celebration season, you are with me. So even an extravagant thing that you anoint my feet with nard or myrrh or what it was, it's like a gist of worshipping God, it's bhakti yoga, it's an extravagance of devotion and surrender. And if I take it selfishly, then of course that is bad. But if not, then it's an act of celebration of God. It doesn't need to be rational. He tells to Judas, you are too rational. Now you start measuring Jesus himself and say, shouldn't we have made some economies? Shouldn't we have been a bit more thrifty and saved some money? And Jesus disagrees. He says, when I will be gone, then you will fast and be into prayer and so on. Now, it's celebration time. So, that's why Jesus is not diverting all his activities along the path of worldliness. That's why Judas errs so bitterly, because he is trying to rationalize Jesus. And eventually, apparently, most people say there are different versions in this field as well, but the most accepted version is that Judas simply says, let's take this Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, and there if you will walk on water and raise some dead and heal some blind, all the Jewish priests will fall on their back with amazement, and they will say, hallelujah, you must be the Messiah. Only that Jesus, when put in front of the Sanhedrin, gives them the finger and says, you are not going to see one single miracle from me. People would say, you've done miracles until yesterday, for God's sake. Why stop now? Now, if you do a couple of miracles, you'll convince these people. That's the part of worldliness. Jesus is not trying to conquer the world or satisfy the world or say, oh, I have so much power, I could convince you guys like this. On the contrary, he is very defiant. He is very provocative, almost like he's asking for trouble. Therefore, remember that there is a very thin line which spiritual people can see very well in the moment when the efforts are directed into worldliness 
as so many religions and institutions are doing today, or there is a special space given to that impredictable, transcendent spiritual nature which is irrational. Sometimes it comes and says, no, now this should be done. And people say, aren't you shooting yourself in the foot? Number eight in this beautiful list. Unless all worldly ambitions be eradicated, anyone is apt to fall into the error of allowing oneself to be dominated by worldly motives. See, the world ambition is sometimes listed positively, like you have an ambitious mind. If you have no ambition, you are a loser, you are a couch potato. But, at the same time, ambition taken into spirituality, like I want that Agama Yoga should become the best known form of yoga in the world. Maybe that's not what God wants. We are in Kali Yuga. I have to surrender. Man proposes, God disposes. There may be reasons for this not to happen, which are beyond me. That's why my ambition can go only as far as proposing, not disposing. There needs to be humbleness. There needs to be thy will be done. I would wish it to be so, but ultimately may God's will be done. This surrender is always very important. That is why ambition which is one of the manifestations of the ego, which lacks humbleness and surrender, ambition, which is a luciferic, satanic factor, like the devil has the ambition to be the ruler of the universe. The devil, the mind, says, why do I need Atman? I am enough to control this universe. The mind can control anything in the universe. That's why, why do I need this transcendent, impotent, immaterial thing when I am all and everything in this reality. That's ambition. That's why there appears this Luciferic thing, I don't need God. I can do without God. We don't need God. I think it was René Descartes with his mental skepticism who created a philosophical system and the king of France to whom the system was presented said, Master Descartes, but there is no God in this theory. And René Descartes said, I didn't need God to create a metaphysical system about the universe. That's Luciferianism. René Descartes, in spite of the fact that he is called the Cartesian thinking is praised, the Cartesian thinking is praised by the materialists, by the Luciferianists. That's why most people don't realize that since two, three hundred years, increasingly we live in a Luciferic world, dominated by the exclusion of God from the affairs of the world. In under all the forms, the government should be separated from the religion. Why? To make the religion impotent so that it can't take any powerful decisions. The schooling system must be separated from the religion. On the contrary, in India, children were educated by gurus who were spiritual people. 
You want your child to be in a religious school because then the idea of God would be beautifully and harmoniously planted in the soul and the mind of a child who would grow with it without any schizophrenic alienation, without any of this luciferic disturbance. That's why for so many people today, when they come to spirituality, it's so difficult. Sometimes people say, you've got the soul which you have by the age of seven. By the age of seven, your kernel soul is built. That's why the first seven years you, you usually should have them at home and your father is out there earning money, so you grow up together with your mother. And that's why in India, the mother is venerated as the first guru. That's why it's a mortal sin to afflict or hurt your mother, because your mother is the first guru. But if your mother is not there, and you grow up with cartoons from the Cartoon Network, which insidiously put in your mind ideas which are luciferic, then you come when you are 25 to yoga, and your soul is in turmoil, because from the very young youth, you have been polluted with unspiritual ideas. For some of you, spirituality goes naturally, and it's like you thrive on it, because probably until the age of seven, by good karma, you have been in a very good environment, and some of you come and struggle a lot and have doubts and problems all the time, because the start has been very bitter in your life. That's a karma. And that simply says you have to struggle more with your doubts and with your things. It doesn't flow naturally. Therefore, the worldly ambitions have to be eradicated. Like Shivananda and Ramakrishna and Teresa of Avila and Mananda Mai, to give feminine names as well, they were not acting because of worldly ambitions. They have done many great things, but not because of worldly ambitions. This is similar to number seven, but it highlights the problem of ambition. If you have no ambition, you are a couch potato, because you need to have the ambition to say, I would like to be the next Buddha. I would like to reach enlightenment. I want to stop being a Svadhisthanistic jellyfish. I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to stand up and wake up. There is an ambition to this, but it's not an ambition which is excessive and which is an ambition which is worldly. That's why the text here says, unless all worldly ambitions be eradicated. Then there are ridiculous people, which are also the agents of the demonic spirits, consciously or not, who say, oh, you guys want to reach nirvana, you want to reach what Ramakrishna reached? How unwise of you. Probably you will never reach because you are very selfish. Look at you. You have the ambition to reach enlightenment. There's nothing wrong with the ambition to reach enlightenment because that's not a worldly ambition. It is a worldly ambition. If you want to reach enlightenment, and then you want to be brown-nosed by everybody. If you want to reach enlightenment and put on a pedestal, recognized, acknowledged, 
That's a worldly ambition. But to reach the transcendental consciousness, it's not a worldly ambition. Therefore, that one is perfectly legitimate. And it's not called an ambition. It's called aspiration. And it's sacred. Therefore, make the difference. Remember that spirituality cannot be governed by worldly ambitions. Some of you, if you'll develop spiritually well, you will see that you will reach in a place of influence. Many of you will become spiritual teachers. Many of you will become spiritual guides, maybe gurus, full-fledged gurus, some of you. And there the temptation is, how much are you governed by worldly ambitions or not? Therefore, this is a very, very deep subject here. Let's move to number nine. By permitting credulous and vulgar admirers to congregate about you, there is liability of falling into the error of becoming puffed up with worldly pride. That's the price of celebrity in spirituality. That's why many spiritual persons would rather prefer to be alone. It's like, spare my modesty. Don't praise me, don't say things. I don't like to be kissed in my ass by anybody. Because first of all, there is this issue that if there is too much of this admiration, of course here the text uses provocative words. It says credulous and vulgar admirers. You might, for example, gain the admiration of Swami Shivananda who says, I admire your effort. That's not a credulous and vulgar admirer. Sometimes there are texts which say, when a man and a woman make love in a divine way, even the gods are witnessing their lovemaking and are applauding in ecstasy because lovemaking is a manifestation of the ecstatic nature of God. But the gods, are not vulgar and credulous admirers. It's okay to be admired by the gods. Vulgar and credulous admirers means exactly what it says. It's very judgmental. It's very like you say, oh, these people are so vulgar, so credulous. And by permitting such to congregate about you, well, they did congregate about Padre Pio. They did congregate by Mahatma Gandhi. They congregated by almost every famous spiritual person to one level or another. It doesn't mean that they fell automatically. The text does not say that that's the failure. It says by permitting that, sometimes it must be allowed. Like there were credulous and vulgar admirers around Buddha and Jesus. And they kind of accepted it but they did not fall for it because then it says there is liability of falling into the error of becoming puffed up with worldly pride. It's not certain. There is liability. There is a very big probability that your pride, vanity, you will not resist to this test and you will fall. The test of pride and vanity 
which addresses to the people that get power, admiration, success, and other such public levels is one of the ultimate ones and one of the most difficult ones. It is sometimes said by mystics that vanity and pride is the ultimate sin. It's more difficult to cope with this than with the sexual fornication, than with the theft or violence or other things. The worst of all of them is pride. Like that's the ultimate. That's the last stumbling step, the last pitfall before enlightenment. That is why spirituality puts so much emphasis on humbleness, surrender, staying away from pride, and it threatens all the time, be careful, pride is what happened to the devil. The devil itself fell because of pride, not because of murder, not because of greed, not because of violence, not because of a hundred other things. The devil is fallen in the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic mysticism. The devil has fallen because of pride. That is why pride is a very, very bitter trap for the spiritual people. And I always call the attention to those of you that I see that they have a strong personality and ego. Careful about the pride. Because you will be able to turn non-violent. You will be able to control your sexual energy. You will be able to do your tapas and to cultivate shaucha, purity. And you will keep some pride and that will destroy all the rest. That is why Mahatma Gandhi said, pride is the, I'm sorry, humility is the solid foundation of all the virtues. If you have the virtue of truthfulness, but you have pride, you are demonic. You are in severe spiritual danger. I am surprised that some religions, either because time passing and disorganization or others, they are forgetting to emphasize on this supreme virtue. All the other virtues, if you have, but if you have vanity and pride, you have screwed up badly. It is much better to have other vices, but not to have pride. Humility, humbleness, is the first virtue which should be taught. That is very, very important. And even the Tibetan yoga, which comes from a totally different meridian, it brings this clearly. You get puffed up with worldly pride. There is also a spiritual pride, as you will see, which they mention. And this is terrible. There are not enough words. I would spend the whole evening and I would spend weeks talking about the relationship between humility, humbleness, meekness, and pride, vanity. This is one of the main stumbling stones. And even when you have become detached from money and wealth, even when you have become detached from sexual temptation, even when you have become detached from a million other things, pride is still there. There is this beautiful movie from more than 10 years ago called The Devil's Advocate, 
the Al Pacino movie, in which he plays the devil, and when the lawyer played by Keanu Reeves in that movie rebels against the demonic temptation and he's ready even to give his life just to be free off the hook, the devil appears again and tickles his pride and he starts, he falls for it. And the devil muses in the end of the movie, the last scene of it is, like I really like the different vices of the human being, but he says, out of them, none of them is as dear to me as vanity. Like vanity, pride is the pitfall. It is six without seven. Even the devil reaching at this level was still not free of pride. That is why only the integration in the cosmic consciousness makes us see truly what our place in the universe is, how big or how small, how relevant or how irrelevant we are, and surrender to this order of the universe, to this dharma, and do the thing which is given to us. Some people are given small things in this life, some people do what Mahatma Gandhi did, or what Dalai Lama does, like famous things, and for such people, the temptation of pride and vanity is gigantic. Somebody comes to a Dalai Lama or to a Mahatma Gandhi or to a Saint Simeon and says, what you do is not good. And then they say, who do you think you are to tell me that what I, I've been spending 20 years, been spending a lifetime, I've meditated, I've like, there is vanity, there is arrogance. In such case, it is terrible. When Saint Simeon, the stylite, invented the Christian method of meditating on top of a pillar of a very high column, he was challenged because no Christian saint or ascetic had ever done this method. And it could have been just the product of his vanity that he wanted to be different. He was flashy. He was exhibitionistic. He wanted to impress. And therefore it was all a product of the ego. And one envoy of the bishop who remember was an institution that was not a holy man, was just an administrative clerk, comes and takes a ladder and climbs to his pillar and says, what are you doing here? The bishop came to, tell to, me, to send me to tell you that you are producing a scandal. You are full of arrogance and ego. You are just showing off. You want people to worship you and to admire you and you are in the face of, you didn't even go in a discreet place, you are near a village or a city here, and you want everybody to see you day and night standing and praying to God, aren't you a shameless, puffed up guy who is actually, so the bishop sent me to tell you, get down, you are spoiling the spirit of the Christian religion, get down this and come with me to the bishop, so he can pull your ear a little bit, and scold you, and Simon, after having been years on this pole, he starts getting down, at which the envoy says, sorry, stay up there, it was just a test. The bishop sent me to test you like this, and he told me, if you are ready to follow me, you are okay. But if you would cling to your thing and say, who do you think you are? I'm in communion with God 10 hours per day here. Do you know what it takes to stand up 24-7 on top of a pole like a bird 
and just pray to God, do you know what a consciousness I have and what a permanent lucidity I have and you are coming me to come back because some stupid fat bishop disagrees with me. You guys are just a dead doctrine. I am the real thing. Simon did not say that, although he may be felt that way. He simply said, if the bishop says so, I will come so to be scolded. Maybe I am in a grave error here. Humility, humbleness, meekness. He was not puffed up thinking I'm so strong and so advanced in my spirituality that uh, you guys can't teach me a thing. He listened and because he was part of the big picture, he realized maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm spoiling the image of the religion which the apostles and the early saints struggled so bitterly to build up. Then therefore, maybe let me be humble. Maybe all this is just a delusion in my head that I'm having so much ambition and so on that I can do this superhuman lifestyle, this superhuman feat. In spite of the fact that he had so much internal power, this man was humble. And the envoy simply said, stand here and continue your work. We know you are from God. We know that you are right. If you can pass the test of humbleness, even the devil cannot touch you. The devil can try to tempt you to become vanitous. But if you have humility, then this is the ultimate protection. And finally, the number 10 of those 10 errors is by boasting of one's occult learning and powers, one is liable to fall into the error of ostensibly exhibiting proficiency in rites and other yogic accomplishments. There are people who can do rituals, who know mantras, who can do all sorts of things, and they are very proud of showing you. Can you do a ritual to bless my child? Can you do a ritual with Tripura Sundari for me to become more like this or like this? Can you teach me something about how to activate my Muladhara Chakra and so on? As one thing when these things are done in a teaching way, a teacher teaching pupils who want to evolve and develop spiritually, and it's another thing about showing off. Like you try to impress people. There are many people who say, Swami, I heard that some people didn't trust you or were gossiping or were this, or they decided to go from the school to another guru. Why don't you do something? I say, what, what should I do? You want me to start levitating or give them some special initiations or try to impress them with some transmissions of energy or, you know, skip some things and give them some kundalini yoga, very flashy, impressive yoga techniques just to keep them around, just to keep them in my entourage or in the school to impress them that the school is good. This is one of the huge temptations of the people who reach occult, metaphysical, spiritual knowledge because they always try to show off. It's like, I know something which you don't know. Let me show you a ritual. Let me teach you a mantra. Let me exert, exemplify some power. On the contrary, spiritual teachers generally very reluctantly recourse to these things. 
like somebody comes and has a disease. One like Swami Shivananda says, oh, you have some pain in your back, I can heal you. Just stand here, now I'm going to heal you. That's what makes Swami Shivananda a demon, if he acts like that. But Swami Shivananda didn't say that. Swami Shivananda says, you should do the cobra pose and take some chiropractic and maybe you should also do gomukasana. And like Swami Shivananda plays stupid. He plays incapable. He diminishes himself and he says, you can heal yourself. You are as great as I am. You are God. Swami Shivananda is empowering the other person and he's not trying to say, oh, you have a pain. Ha <laughs> ha, it's peanuts for me. Just look at my finger right now. I'm going to do it. Bam. You know, <clears throat> that is ostensibly exhibiting proficiency in rights or other yogic accomplishments. Yogis, the true yogis, they avoid ostensibly exhibiting anything. That is a self-protection. It is a protection against pride and vanity of a subtle. You are not having a worldly pride maybe, but you have the pride of people saying, you know that guru. <laughs> that guru can look through your body like with x-rays and can see this and then he clicks his fingers and you feel a big heat in your body that's it and that but the yoga sutra of Patanjali clearly says don't do that if you want to be a spiritual person don't do that that is where the problem is because of course there are many paranormal things which can manifest in yoga but Yogis in the true spirit of yoga, like here in the true spirit of Tibetan yoga, they are taught like you can do rituals, you can do mantras, you can invoke cosmic powers and presences, you can heal, you can have occult things, you can, like, for example, I even told since years to the people that are booking my appointments, my so-called office hours, if anybody is telling you that they want to come to me for a chakra reading, throw them out. I am not giving chakra readings because I have not written on my world, on my door, Swami Vivekananda, healer, seer, clairvoyant, and you are not coming to me for a chakra reading. If I consider that it is useful for your evolution, I might pull the curtain from that thing and deign to reveal that thing to you, thus implicitly showing to you that I can do it. That's problematic for me, because in the moment when I show you that I can do it, it puts my modesty and my humility at a bitter test. That's why I would rather prefer not to do it. I would rather prefer to play dumb and to tell you from all the signs which I can see it seems because you have a skin problem that your Anahata Chakra is blocked. So why don't you do 30 minutes of Anahata Chakra work from now? Many people have been interviewed with me. You know that that's exactly how I proceed. And, and then sometimes people push it and they say, but can you really see that I have a problem in my Anahata? There is the borderline. Then I have to decide. Do I want to support this person and give them a little bit of confidence 
or should I keep playing dumb and simply saying, well, no, but from all the signs which appear, I don't even need to look or see because rationally and theoretically, yogically, it's clear that you should work on anahata. And the person says, I better can go at somebody who can stick his hand in my body and move my internal organs and do something. People are crazy about occult powers. To go somewhere where somebody does some occult things, it's not only Tibetan yoga. It's the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. It's the teachings from Ramakrishna to Shivananda and from Mananda Mai to Yogananda that claim this. Do not exhibit as much as possible things. The Christian saints say, always talk about the miracles of other practitioners and saints. Don't talk about what you have done. Never. Like simply tell to people, do you know that uh, Saint Mark of Ethiopia lived alone for four years, for 40 years? And people say, but we heard that you also spent three years alone. Like I would rather not talk about that. Don't talk about your things. Because when you talk about your things, you will end by boasting, by bragging, by puffing up your ego. That is why in real yoga, there appears there is always this trend of humbleness and modesty. Don't say much. There are people who have been with me in this school years and years, and most of them haven't heard a third of what I have done, for example. And I don't like to talk about it. Maybe I have done crap. Maybe I haven't done anything significant. People say, Swami, you are hiding behind that. You say people don't know, but if they were to know, what would there be to know? That's exactly the mystery which remains there. But the point is that somebody who brags, like for example, Milarepa, only at the time of his death, told the story of his life. When he was about to die, he said, okay, because you need aspiration and you need inspiration, now that I'm going to die and it doesn't matter anymore, I shall tell you the magic story of my life. Not before. Milarepa didn't say, you know what the story of my life is? Please, I am such a great yogi who has been 40 years in the mountains meditating. Then you can be my disciples. You can really trust me. I am the real thing. No, he never used that as an argument. Oh, you know, one day I found myself floating in midair. People say, wow, what a yogi this one is. This is what we are talking about. There is a subtle form of the ego, which is the ego manifesting in occult and spiritual things. Some people have a spiritual ego. The spiritual ego is as bad as the worldly ego because it's still a form of infatuation, it's still a form of egocentrism, and that is why it has to be curbed. With this, the text concludes dryly, these are the ten errors. Somebody would say, can't we find the eleventh error? I don't know, meditate, have them, read them. Maybe you are a genius who will describe the eleventh error. People will say, why are they ten? Why not a less significant and rounded up number? Of course, that is a way of looking upon things. 
But remember that the people who wrote such things, they had an Ajna Chakra as big as Tibet itself. The people who wrote these kinds of things had levels of spiritual insight and clairvoyance, which were gigantic. Their spiritual experience was glorious. And thus, those people understood profoundly the human soul and the issue of evolution. And you can expect that what they wrote is pretty rounded up. They won't miss any essential facet of the spiritual life at least in the way in which the spiritual life was in their part of the world.